Welcome to Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Katie. And I'm Serena. And today we'll be talking about two weeks worth of Come Follow Me, Doctrine and Covenants 18 through 19, then Doctrine and Covenants 20 through 22. Let me summarize really quick. And this is just things that it talks about the most. It's a quick summary. Mm -hmm. Doctrine and Covenants 18 talks about the instructions for calling the 12 apostles. 19 talks about suffering being taken away through repentance in Christ. And it also gives specific counsel to Martin Harris about his affairs and what he needs to do. 20 through 22, it's mostly establishing the church. There's a testimony of Christ, and then there's baptism, qualifications and procedures, duty of priesthood holders, sacrament prayer and procedures, how to keep track of membership records, and then calling Joseph Smith to be the prophet and establishing leadership. All of that happens sprinkled in throughout section 20 through 22. I mean, first off, section 18, verse 10 that's an oft cited verse when it comes to like missionary work, etc. And I was just curious how you think that we can apply that verse to the disability and neurodivergent communities. I mean, it ties back to the idea that everyone that exists on earth has the capacity to feel the spirit in some way and to be touched by God in some way. So in my mind, it just is a really big call for equality in the church for treating everyone like they're of worth in the church Mm -hmm. and making sure it's a space for everyone to feel that in this gospel. If this is truly the church of Jesus Christ, then it'll be a space that proves this scripture, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. Yeah. In verses after that verse, it talks about how great God's joy will be when people repent because the worth of souls is great to him, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And I guess my question here is, what does repentance mean? Like, I have a lot of trouble defining what repentance means. Like, if we're constantly learning about the nature of the divine, and we're constantly learning about better ways to advocate against injustice and for marginalized peoples, we're constantly relearning what God and the divine is. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. back in the day, prophets literally have said it's a sin for two people of different races to be married. And they quote-unquote called people to repentance to, like, break up with their boyfriends or girlfriends. We see this nowadays in LGBTQ communities, bishops calling people to repentance, saying, oh, we don't believe you're non-binary or that you're a trans woman. You need to repent and change your gender expression back to what you were when you were born, or you need to repent and stop being in a same-sex relationship. That's why I have issues with repentance, because I feel like who defines what repentance is? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, to me, it's super subjective. And so if it's going to be subjective, then let's define it for ourselves in a way that validates what we're trying to do in the advocacy and work that we're doing and the change we want to see in the church. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you... S- Do you see that in a disability lens too, or are you more thinking specifically LGBTQ plus? Uh, I want to explore it in the disability context. Like I don't have any defined thoughts. That's why I'm asking because like we've seen that in other marginalized communities. That's, that's why I bring them up. Right. We see that in BIPOC communities and the church. We see that in LGBTQ communities and the church of them saying, actually, no, I don't believe this is a sin. I don't believe I need to repent of this. I don't believe that having these natural inclinations means that I'm sinful, you know? So how do we take that same redefining of sin and repentance and apply that to our community and our identities as disabled and neurodivergent people. Yeah. um, I feel like the idea that any disabled person was cursed from God or they became disabled because of previous sin. I feel like that's kind of an old idea that's not really shared anymore Mm -hmm. in mainstream saints. Maybe some people still have those ideas, but don't share them. I don't know. 
I think, I think now it leans more toward, um, you were a valiant soul in the pre-mortal world and now you were sent in a humbling body. I don't know. But perhaps the discussion is bigger around people who have poor mental health. That would be the main thing where people could be called out for sinning when it's something that is just natural with how their minds function and how their bodies function. I mean, like, I've already come to the conclusion that I believe sin and repentance are subjective. I think the most common and, like, the simplest definition of sin and repentance in the church is this person in authority, usually authority from God, has given us these commandments or these rules. And if you break them, that's sin. And when you decide to keep them again and you incorporate that into your life, that's repentance, you know? Okay. But like I said, (laughs) my moral authority is inside of me, you know? So I guess Mm -hmm. it's just more of like my exploring within myself, like what do I believe is sin if I don't believe that someone else has moral authority over me? Mm -hmm. It's almost more introspective. I think it's something that I need to keep pondering I think there are a lot of reasons why people do different things. And I know we talked about impact over intent in our last episode. Part of me wants to say, well, if I did this because of this reason, that means it's not a sin, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, last week, I literally just said impact over intent. And so it's like, where's the line there? You know, like, Mm -hmm. I do think that our intentions matter. But I also think impact on other people matters more than our intentions. And so I feel like where I'm at right now, and this might change, is that when we harm other people, that's a sin, regardless of the intent. When it comes to quote unquote sins that relate to ourselves, I think we are the ones who decide whether something is harmful for ourselves. You know, Mm. I think it's incredibly gaslighting for some bishop to say you need to repent of this sin that you did that didn't affect anybody else simply because the scriptures say it's wrong and you say well I actually got a lot of benefit from it and then them constantly bearing down on you and saying no actually you're sinful you should be ashamed you need to repent you Mm. know Um, and I've talked about this before a little bit like my experience with that one bishop So that's my current definition of sin, and I think that's broad enough to apply to ableism and racism and homophobia and transphobia and patriarchy and imperialism and colonialism. (laughs) Anyway. Well, and the hard thing with that is I feel like everyone's in a different place with their knowledge on these outside forces that seem invisible but are so relevant like patriarchy ableism racism all the things that you just listed they can be hard for people to identify because they're maybe not tangible in their lives you know that would make the measure of sin so different for so many people the way you're describing it it's almost like there is an ultimate truth in right and wrong with the idea that like ableism is wrong racism is wrong Um, the patriarchy is like corrupt and wrong and doesn't function for everyone. So there are these ultimate truths that, that identify sin when people come to understand them, uh, they're better able to morally look at them and say, oh, I see how this big system works and how perhaps I benefit from it. Even if they benefit from it, they can recognize it is still innately wrong and it's still being oppressive to people. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there's a difficulty there in having people identify sin themselves and then working from there. Ultimately, I think it's helpful to have the prophet's guidance in saying this is a sin, don't do it. But if they were more vocal on how people are oppressed by different functions that are active in our society that would bring about a lot of goodness that's 
not being brought about right now specifically because it's kind of on the members to figure that out themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like we're taught to love others and mourn with those that mourn, but it's easier to know how to do that if you understand how systems work against these people. I agree with that. If we're going to draw a hard line and say these things are sinful because they're harmful, racism, ableism, patriarchy, homophobia, just to list four things. Like, we're going to draw a hard line and say that these things are sinful. It should be preached from the very top. Yeah. Because I think I'm an anomaly in the sense that I don't particularly care about authority. (laughs) I think a lot of people do. So I do think that would be really helpful for the people who do look to authority as their source of moral guidance Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, (laughs) these things are actually wrong, you know? And I think part of it is that scripture, um, blessed are those who are humble without being compelled to be humble, right? Oh, yeah. And so I think part of it is like, I don't know, maybe this is prideful, but I, I feel like I don't need someone in charge telling me that those things are a sin because I've had life experiences where I've learned it for myself. And maybe you can attribute some of that to some of the hard things that I've personally faced in life. You know, maybe that in itself was humbling me, whereas other people haven't had those experiences because they're more privileged, right? Because they grew up in a, in a safer environment because they're white because they're straight and cisgendered because they're male, you know? And Mm -hmm. so for them, it's harder to be humble because they have all that privilege. And in which case we need people to humble them, you know? And perhaps the only people who can humble those people are the people they look to for authority, like the apostles and the prophets. So in that sense, I guess... I don't mind authority if they're going to actually do something good (laughs) Mm -hmm. and call those people to repentance. Because if that's how we're defining repentance as turning away from these isms that harm marginalized people, then yes, authority, like, because section 19 has very strong language about repentance, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wrote in my notes that verse 15 is angry Jesus. (laughs) saying that he will smite people who don't repent, saying how sore your sufferings will be, ye know not. For a lot of people, this can be really scary language. Whether or not you interpret this section as reassuring versus scary depends on how you define sin and therefore what you're defining as repentance. If you're defining sin as something that you are currently guilty of, whatever that may be, whether it's breaking the law of chastity or whether it's internalized ableism, then yes, this can be scary because it's like a really hard call to repentance, right? But if Mm -hmm. you're interpreting it as something that you're not guilty of, that other people are guilty of, then you're like, all right, get it, Jesus. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, Go ahead. Like, I want you to to use your hammer of justice because there can't be peace until there is justice. Anyway, what do you think mm-hmm. about section 19 and sin and repentance? Well, interestingly enough, I think our church really pushes the idea that God is, well, or maybe it's more so that Christ is the one that's like peaceful and loving and super accepting Um, But then this, the scriptures that you're talking about, uh, at least 16 through 19 in section 19, uh, they Mm -hmm. were scripture masteries when we were in seminary. Um, I have them (laughs) marked as so. They go really hard into, like, I'll read, but if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. We do believe in a God that's like wrathful and will bring down the hammer, but I don't feel like that's talked about very much. And that's interesting. I think it's hard for people to face and harder to talk about. But yeah, you're right. When I read this section, verse 17 really stood out to me. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. And I was like, whoa, like what? The reference on verse 17 is Mark 14, 36. 
which says, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting reference for verse 17. That it's talking about you're going to suffer like I did. And then it goes to a verse that talks about Christ asking the cup to be taken away from him. Nevertheless, what I will, but what thou wilt. But I will be obedient to thy will. I know there's a lot of different views on disability and (laughs) if people would have it taken away from them or not, Mm -hmm. if they had the choice. But I feel like this verse, Mark 14, 36, is probably really relatable to disabled people. Please take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. It's kind of a, in my mind, it's like a painful trust in God. Like, I'll trust in you, even though I'm going through something I don't want to go through, thy will be done kind of thing. This section made me think of an experience I had on my mission that I've referenced before in other episodes. I served in Texas and multiple times on my mission, I would just be going about my day and people would see my disability and ask if they could pray for me or there was one P-Day we were shopping at a grocery store and there was this woman that followed us around and we noticed that she was following us like in the aisles and everything and we were like, oh, what's going on? And she ended up cornering us in an aisle, grabbed my hands, which is dangerous because I use them to walk with my crutches. So she kind of threw me off balance a little bit, but she grabbed my hands and she said, I have the power of God to heal you. If you have faith in this moment, I can heal you in this moment. Can I pray with you now? And in my missionary brain where I'm like, but the priesthood, but the church, like, first of all, I didn't know what my feelings were on that moment about me being healed by this woman, period. But also the idea of authority and priesthood in this random woman who's not of our church grabbing my hands. I was like, would the Lord condemn me if I sought healing from this random woman who's not in our church and she doesn't have the priesthood? And it like scared me. And I like pushed her hands off my hands and I was like, no, no. And we just walked away. Like, I don't even know what I said to her, but we walked away And that shook me for weeks, for weeks. I was like, that was such a strange experience. What, what should have my reaction been? Like, what, what was I supposed to do in that moment? What am I supposed to believe about that? And from that moment, I began having the thoughts like, well, Christ did bring about miracles when he was on the earth. He healed people from disabilities. I know that we're taught miracles can still happen today. And I began wondering, like, If I have the faith, could I be healed? And uh, this is so hard for me to talk about, but I feel like it's an important thing to talk about when we talk about disability in the church. These things are on disabled people's minds. And I think able-bodied people, (laughs) they want disabled people to talk about it and then come to a, a spot where they're like empowered by this idea, but it can also be an idea that's not empowering and that's painful. I began reading in the Bible. There's uh, so many stories of how Christ healed people. And I kind of came to the conclusion, I'm like, oh, well, Christ was the one healing. And although his power is on the earth today, he's not on earth. So maybe people aren't being like healed from straight up disability. But then I found the story of, uh, there's the story of his apostles and they're walking, I believe they're walking to the temple. This is after Christ has passed away. They pass this man who's on the steps of the temple. I should have looked up the story because my memory is going to be a little foggy on the exact story. But there's this disabled man who his legs don't work and he's on the steps of the temple. He has to be healed and the apostles pray for him and then he's healed. And the scriptures say that he literally gets up and starts dancing on the steps and on the road. And he's like rejoicing in the fact that the apostles healed him. So then reading that story, I'm like, okay, so it isn't Christ that has to heal. It's literally the power of the priesthood that can heal. So technically, my disability, like, it has to do with my back and my legs. Like, it seems like such a big disability that couldn't just be healed. Doctors don't have a cure for spina bifida right now. 
but God can do anything. He can heal me. So at the end of my mission, like literally I'm going home the next day and we're staying at the mission president's house that night. There's like a group of like five of us that are going home. And yes, all five of us, like if there's any one last thing that we want to do as missionaries, any discussions that we want to have with him, anything we want to learn. And I asked him privately if I could have a priesthood blessing. And I told him about all the things that I learned that Christ can really heal disabled people and he can take things that seem like they can't be healed and he can heal them with the power of the priesthood. And my mission president, he said, yes, let's say this prayer. So it was my mission president, one other missionary and me. And they put their hands on my head and they said this beautiful priest blessing about how my body's going to be strong and how I'll be a faithful person and I'll be able to find strength in Christ. And then at the end of the prayer, after they said amen, my mission president, I remember his exact words. He said, we always learn about the faith to be healed, but you have to ask yourself, do you have the faith to not be healed? It's hard to feel like you can have faith that's so strong and to want something so bad. Anytime Christ heals someone, he always says, by your faith, you will be healed. And and then he uses the priesthood to heal. So I think those are the two things that you need to be quote unquote healed. And I felt like I had that in that moment. And I still was told after the prayer, do you have the faith to not be healed? And I'm grateful that he had the insight to say that to me because I feel like it almost takes more faith to not be healed than to have faith to be healed, if you know what I mean. That's the faith that is focused in humility and patience. And that is like the hardest, sorry, I'm going to start crying. That's like the hardest kind of faith to have, to know that things might not happen in your earth life that you maybe want to happen. It was a really powerful moment in a positive way in my life, but also I look at it as a really hard moment because I feel like that's the answer that a lot of people are given if they're given life circumstances that are hard, like people that have fertility problems or people that never been married and just like circumstances like that, like we're taught that these are the things we should do in the gospel and this is what we should be. And there's people that fall outside of that, not by choices of their own, but then that's the answer they're given. Like eventually this will come to you. It might just be in the next life. And I feel like at times that's comforting, but at times that really sucks and it's really hard. Anyway, I really connected with Christ in these scriptures, specifically that reference to Mark 1436. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but thou wilt. I feel a little bit like I'm cheating in in a sense, though, that like with my disability, there's literally nothing I can do to be healed on my own. So it's almost like I'm being forced to resort to this idea, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt, because I have to. So it's it's almost like it's like a painful empty, forced faith. And I think members, able-bodied members, see it as like this beautiful, strong, faithful thing that I'm like able to be such a faithful member and have a disability. But in reality, in my mind, it's like this painful, painful thing. And I don't view my, I'm telling this story like I view my disability as 100% negative. That's not true. I've gone through parts of my life where I viewed it as super negative. I've gone through parts of my life where I viewed it as super positive. And that's why overall I categorize myself as viewing it as neutral because I know that there's been both sides in my life. But I don't know. I just encourage people to not view disabled people as like a token of strength and as a token of power and inspiration because... These things that were taught in the gospel can be really painful and can feel like almost like you're being excluded from all these other people who can have faith and bring about miracles. And why why don't I get this miracle that I want? You know what I mean? I feel like 
it's important to share these stories in a safe space. I don't think I would share this in a like a Sunday school or something with a bunch of able-bodied people because I feel like they would use that story or think of that story in a way that I wouldn't want them to think about. But I share it for disabled people because it's okay to feel like unsure about where you stand with your disability and to kind of see these stories that we tell in the gospel and kind of feel pain from them. That's okay. We're all in a different place. I don't know. I I connect with Christ so much in that moment where it's like, I don't want this. Like, I don't have to find peace in my disability like able-bodied people want me to. I can still be in a hard place with that and still be a good faithful member and still believe in Christ, if that makes sense. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Wow. That was very tender, Katie. I I think that there is power in vulnerability. And that section stuck out to me as well. But to me, it was verse 18 that stuck out specifically because he's being vulnerable there. Jesus is saying, which suffering caused myself, even God or even a God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. This verse, this verse 18 is what makes me love this entire section despite how like fire and brimstone the rest of the section is, right? Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. I know at times I've been like, oh, I I hate this section. It comes down too strong. It's too judgmental, etc., right? But this verse in there, um, that contrast between his anger and his vulnerability, I think is what centers all of it and makes it feel human to me and makes it feel relatable. You know, his mixed emotions, his vulnerability there gives context to his anger in the previous verses. Because why did he suffer? He suffered for the sins, you know? So I think part of him is like, If y'all didn't sin, I wouldn't have suffered as much. I think part of that, and maybe I'm reading into this, but you could almost read it as he's like anguishing for justice for himself because he Mm -hmm. had to suffer these sins because other people harmed other people. And so he had to feel that harm too, you know? And so part of him, I think is, you can read those verses of fire and brimstone and judgment as, Jesus is yearning himself for justice and it makes me empathize with his anger although to be honest I empathize with his anger naturally anyway because <laughs> I have a lot of righteous indignation as some people might put it it's a Christ-like attribute that's underappreciated Serena <laughs> thank you I appreciate you saying that but yeah, I think I agree. I think there's a lot of disabled solidarity here. Like how we were reading that article that Derek sent about the disabled God and how him keeping his scars after his resurrection is an example or an allegory of disability. We can also mm-hmm. see this as yet another allegory of disability as more examples of Jesus Christ representing a disabled God because yes. many of us do suffer pain and trembling every day because of our disabilities, you know? I also thought 18 was really cool for that reason. You started referencing the disabled God from Doctrine and Covenants 18 to section 22. There are three times where it mentions the atonement in detail, and it focuses on Christ's suffering to bring about salvation. In Doctrine and Covenants 18, 27 through 39, it's talking about the 12 apostles, and then it starts going into Christ and how their job is to testify of him, and then it goes a little bit into his suffering, and then it talks about Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer and their job to call the 12 apostles. And next to this in my scriptures, I wrote Bruce R. McConkie's The Purifying Power of Gethsemane. Um, Have you heard that talk before? I was going to reference Bruce R. McConkie in a different context later on. (laughs) Oh, no way. Okay, so let me say this bit and then tell me if it connects to what you were thinking about Bruce R. McConkie. That's that's so funny. Uh, We'll see. Okay. So Bruce R. McConkie, the conference talk that I wrote on the side of my scriptures... In that talk, although not directly, he does reference the idea of the disabled God. 
This talk that he gave, it's seen as one of the most powerful conference talks ever. At the time, he was a disabled man. He was going through cancer and it was getting really, really bad. And he gave this talk on April 6th and he died of cancer 13 days later. This was his last testimony of Christ that he gave. I share that context because the idea of how meaningful it was, Christ's pains and sufferings, and specifically when he talks about Christ's scars, his whole talk is incredible, but that's the part that he starts crying. I think that he, as well in this moment, really connects to the disabled God. Um, let me play his the end of his talk right here. I am one of his witnesses. And in the coming day, I shall feel the nail marks in his hands and in his feet and shall wet his feet with my tears. But I shall not know any better then that I know now that he is God's almighty son, that he is our savior and redeemer, and that salvation comes in and through his atoning blood and in no other way. God grant that all of us may walk in the light as God our Father is in the light, so that according to the promises, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, will cleanse us from all sin. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. I really wanted to share that because also in the beginning of the talk, Bruce R. McConkie talks about how, although he quotes from ideas shared in the scriptures and shared from other prophets, uh, it's not even necessarily him quoting it because the words have become his own. And it actually talks about that idea in Come Follow Me, even specifically when it talks about this scripture, Doctrine and Covenants 21.5. Uh, it asks the question, how can you receive the living prophet's words as if from God's own mouth? So both of those ideas made me think of this talk, Bruce R. McConkie, and it's it's an incredible talk if you want to go listen to the whole thing. Uh, again, it's called The Purifying Power of Gethsemane. Does that lead into at all what you were thinking about Bruce R. McConkie? <laughs> yeah, no. What happened when I went down this rabbit hole is I was looking at, let's see, is this, oh, this is still section 18. However, there are themes about this in section 20, verse 37, and verse 71 in section 20. So my question was about baptism and accountability. 18 says that all people who are at the years of accountability must be baptized. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One question I've had a lot over the years is why is eight the age of accountability? What defines accountability? And some of my initial thoughts is if we believe that intelligence is eternal, like Joseph Smith has taught, and that intelligence existed before they were organized into bodies, then intelligence really doesn't make sense for that to define someone as accountable enough to be baptized because the intelligence already existed, you know? And yet we say that some people with intellectual disabilities are exempt from baptism. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, what defines someone as needing baptism? Is it simply absorption of the world of sin and human culture that defines accountability? And if that's the case, can eight-year-olds really sin? Like, how much harm can you commit when you're eight years old? But then I also remember that there were studies where babies as young as six months can start to exhibit racial preferences, and this is highlighted in white babies. Six months old? I think it's like in between three and nine months, and so I just did six as, as like an average. But so I have all these conflicting, conflicting, it's not conflicting, it's just like, there's this, but this, but also this, that modifies this, you know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. I, I really wanted to research that. So I went to one of my favorite intellectual Mormon blogs, it's called By Common Consent. There's this series of articles by Common Consent that's called Intellectual Disabilities Within Mormonism. So this one author, B. Hodges, 
they write this series of articles discussing intellectual disability within the church. In one of them, they reference Bruce R. McConkie, and in his book, Mormon Doctrine, which initially I'm like, "Ah," because I don't know if you know this, but his first edition of Mormon Doctrine was like widely refuted by other authorities in the church. And they're like, oh, bro, you said a bunch of problematic things. And so then he had to revise it. So then they put out like a second edition because they were like, the first edition is not doctrine. That's just you. (laughs) Oh, I mean, I've heard even the one that we can read today. I've heard that it's full of a lot of controversy and outdated And I'm not even sure the ones that we read today, which edition that is. Like, I'm not sure if if people know that there are two different editions. But this blog post says that this section on, quote, idiocy simply says, see years of accountability. That's all it says? Yep. And then going on in this blog post, B. Hodges pointed out Bruce R. McConkie also wrote an Ensign article in 1977 entitled The Salvation of Little Children, and in that he says, quote, What about the mentally deficient? It is with them as it is with little children. They never arrive at the years of accountability and are considered as though they were little children. If because of some physical deficiency or for some other reason unknown to us, they never mature in the spiritual and moral sense, then they never become accountable for sins. They need no baptism, they are alive in Christ, and they will receive, inherit, and possess an eternity on the same basis as do all children. Which, I think able-bodied and and neurotypical people might look at that and be like, oh, that's super nice, that's super sweet, you know? (laughs) Like, they're saved, they don't need baptism, you know? But, like, what if they want to be baptized? Who are you to decide whether someone should be baptized if they want to be included in the church? I'm going to reference another article, and this is on a different Mormon blog site. It's called Rational Fates. This article is called Disability and Human Potential, and it's written by Jeremy Timothy. He says, in Mormon culture, there is a lot of folklore attempting a theodicy to explain why these children exist. What are they getting out of mortality? It is tempting to dip into pre-mortal existence for answers. It is very popular to suggest that these children were the noble and great ones. So mm-hmm. far, they don't need the full mortal experience. Mm. I think this folklore has a danger in that it can saccharinize disability. It trivializes their own purpose and meaning in this life. It leads to patronizing attitudes that stunt the personal growth of children with chronic disease. The fact is that they are here, fully mortal and fully human, and I believe it is for their own experience and good as with any of us. I really love that commentary because (laughs) in kind of opposition to what Bruce R. McConkie said, Side note, just because he says one problematic thing does not mean that other things that he says can't also be really helpful and beautiful. And also just because one thing that someone says is really helpful and beautiful doesn't mean that they won't also say problematic things. So let that contradiction sit with you. Yeah. But yeah, the whole like, oh, they're innocent. The whole trivializing thing is so common Mm -hmm. in our ableist society, you know? I think that's the whole point, right? That's why we called our podcast Holy Human, because we want neurotypical and non-disabled people to view us as holy human. And like, hey, to break it to you, people, but part of being human is making mistakes and harming other people. And if you view us always as these innocent angels who are sent to bless other people, then you're not viewing us as holy human. We're not angels, we're human. We're not vampires, we're human. (laughs) We're not werewolves, we're human, okay? Like, part of that is having the ability to learn, and part of learning is making mistakes. I just want people to know that we do grow and change. I'm glad that you pointed out baptism and what the church says on baptism now having to do with disability. I thought about that while I was studying, but then I ended up diving into other things and forgot about it. So I'm glad you brought it up. (laughs) Right when we were in the works of creating this podcast and getting everything set up and planned, 
in December of 2020, they released all these changes to the church handbook. I mean, there were things outside of disability, but there was a pretty big focus on disability, specifically with members with intellectual disabilities. The church recognizes the challenges that members sometimes face in making decisions about ordinances. This is quoting the church newsroom article about the policy changes that the church made. Gotcha. So the newsroom said, The handbook now explains that the bishop has responsibility for baptism of members of record who are baptized at the age of nine or older because of intellectual disabilities. These members no longer have to be taught by the missionaries unless they desire to be. The handbook also encourages individuals, leaders, and where applicable parents to counsel together in making decisions about receiving ordinances. So... I'm so glad that the church has updated things since Bruce R. McConkie spoke and said those things, yikes, about (laughs) people with intellectual disabilities and disabled people in general having to do with baptism. It looks like they're being a lot more considerate. Part of me wants to like nitpick on the policy changes. Pretty much it focuses on if the person can make a decision about baptism, let them. If not the bishop and the parents will counsel together and decide on if the person is able to accept baptism and understand baptism well enough, or if they're unable to. If they're unable to, because of accountability, they should not be baptized. That's kind of like what the church teaches now, and it gets more specific in the church handbook. Overall, I guess I'm thinking that's the best way to do it with intellectual disabilities, because people shouldn't, in general, take on commitments Uh that they don't understand and agree to them. So I'm glad it considers that. Like, it's a step in the right direction, but I also think, and maybe maybe I would feel differently if I had a family member who was intellectually disabled, right? But I don't think people should be making the decision for them at all, you know? Like, I think it should be up to them and what they desire. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to minister to each other according to our wants not just our needs. Mm -hmm. If you look at Doctrine and Covenants section 20, verse 37, it says, And again, by way of commandment to the church concerning the manner of baptism, all those who humble themselves before God and desire to be baptized and come forth with broken hearts and contrite spirits and witness before the church that they have truly repented of all their sins, and are willing to take upon them the name of Jesus Christ, having a determination to serve him to the end, and truly manifest by their works that they have received of the Spirit of Christ unto the remission of their sins, shall be received by baptism into his church. It does not even mention age of accountability in this verse. It's literally just all those who humble themselves, want to be baptized, and can show that they repented, should be received by baptism into the church. I really like that. I just worry about people viewing a disabled person as an infant when really they have their own will, their own agency, and just because they think differently and learn differently does not mean that they can't make their own decisions and can't identify what they really want. I really hope Bishop's parents will err on the side of allowing their disabled children to express their agency and accountability. Yeah, I totally agree. I really, really hope that when people read these changes in policy regarding disabled members, they do consider the individual really carefully and not their own biases about disability. Mm -hmm. I fear that some bishops will jump to an answer before they even give the idea a chance. Yeah. Even going the other direction. We see this sometimes even with children who are not disabled. If a kid doesn't want to get baptized, don't force them to get baptized. Mm -hmm. Let them grow and learn and respect their spiritual journey. They're their own human. Let Mm -hmm. them have their own spiritual journey and stop expecting people to hit certain milestones at certain ages. Because I think Mm -hmm. that can be really dangerous, especially in a culture that's so tied to milestones and rites of passage like oh you're baptized when you're eight if you're a boy you're ordained at 12 you can go to church dances when you're 14 you can start dating when you're 16 you can go on a mission when you're 18 when you're 19 and then when you get back when you're 20 and 21 then you have a couple years leeway and then you get married (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Like, I ugh, I don't want to gripe on that for too long. I just want to point that out, that we do have this culture of, like, you got to do things at a certain age. And I just want to sh- highlight another example where maybe we can loosen up a little and respect. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when we talk about agency, we ignore the different ways that we infringe on other people's agency through peer pressure, taking away options, fear, you know, I think those are things that infringe on agency. Anyway, <laughs> there's so much in, in these in these chapters, actually, verse 65, in section 20, which says no person is to be ordained to any office in this church, where there is a regularly organized branch of the same without the vote of that church. And I just want to touch on that and say, hey, we have a voter suppression problem in our church where everybody feels pressured to vote yes during sacrament meeting. And if you don't vote yes and you vote no, then people look at you like you're apostatizing when really that should be the natural course of things. So I'm just going to throw that in there. We have a voter suppression issue, especially if disabled people cannot attend because of their disabilities. Um, (laughs) But I had one last thing I wanted to talk about when I was doing research on intellectual disability on By Common Consent, the name of this blog post. It's In Memory of an Infant Son. And it's interesting because this relates completely to things we were talking about historically in previous sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, describing how in 1828, Joseph and Emma lost an infant son right around the time that the 116 pages were lost, right? Like we've Mm -hmm. talked about Martin Harris, but centering this son who possibly had birth defects. This author makes the case that this experience of losing a disabled child probably shaped Joseph's attitude towards infant baptism and salvation. This blog post points out, why is this disabled child not mentioned? Why is his disability not mentioned? Why, Mm -hmm. when Joseph Smith received the revelation at that time, God was admonishing him about the 116 pages and yet saying he's still called to the work. Joseph was going through this intense pain about the loss of his son. Why did God not talk to him about that? This author says that maybe the reason why the child wasn't mentioned is because he bore the marks of disability. And the author says if you trace the invocation, the amount that it's mentioned of Joseph's disabled deceased child kind of sheds light on how attitudes towards disability changed throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Most of the sources talking about this child who has disability comes from people who were anti-Mormon and who were trying to discredit Joseph Smith, which I found really interesting. Wow. Yeah. Sophia Lewis, who claimed to be present at the birth, said in an affidavit attacking Joseph's character, this affidavit was published in these newspapers. It was republished in the first full anti-Mormon book, Sophia said that she, quote, was present at the birth of this child and that it was stillborn and very much deformed. Decades later, another woman claimed that Emma, quote, had a child which was stillborn and much deformed. Later on, a Yale graduate would invoke the rumor as further justification for his medical diagnosis of Joseph as an epileptic which I thought was really interesting. Like, I didn't even know that some random person said that Joseph Smith had epilepsy and that they used that to discredit Joseph and that part of the reason that they called him epileptic is because he had a deformed child who passed away. Quote-unquote deformed, right? Like, I don't like that word. Do you mean to discredit him meaning... Disability was viewed as such a terrible, dark, different, shameful thing back then that being associated with disability made you lesser of a person just to be associated with disability. Is that right? Yeah, that's what this article is saying. Because it points out why do people who are criticizing Joseph and the church need to point out this child's disability? They don't say, oh, Joseph Smith loved this child so much and he had a disability. You know what I mean? Like they say, Joseph Smith was this terrible person. Maybe he had epilepsy. And also he had a deformed child that died. And we shouldn't trust him because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Very strange. So they're using Joseph's child's disability as like demonize him. 
Wow. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, so I had a lot of feelings about that. And so soon after, Joseph said, and this is in one of the journals of discourse, he says, it is an unhallowed principle to say that such and such have transgressed because they have been preyed upon by disease or death. For all flesh is subject to death. All flesh is subject to suffer. And the righteous shall hardly escape. Many of the righteous shall fall prey to disease, to pestilence, and by reason of the weakness of the flesh and yet be saved in the kingdom of God. Which, if you look at the context, at that time, people viewed disability as a curse. People viewed it as a result of sin. So Joseph saying that is honestly kind of remarkable. Mm -hmm. Honestly, that makes me like love Joseph a little bit. (laughs) Makes me have a little bit more sympathy towards him and empathy. He had a disabled child and instead of demonizing his own child, he allowed that to change him and to Mm -hmm. institute these views on accountability and child baptism. Because at that time... Christian churches were baptizing little babies. Like, if you look carefully, it just shows how strongly Joseph felt about this. And yeah, you could debate whether the the age of accountability needs to be raised. But even the fact that he moved it up to eight years old, I think, was in reference to his own child who died, who was disabled. That's really insightful. I'm glad you found that information. It's a shame that there's not this giant thing that the church has put out that doesn't share that story because that's a really, really insightful. I feel like with the movement against racism, the church has been more like, hey, look, Jane Manning, her story. And I just read this thing about Green Flake and he was like one of the first to come in with Brigham Young and establish Zion. And he was a black man. He was a slave, slave, actually. I feel like the church is being a lot more vocal and sharing these stories about early saints who were black or people of color, but we don't have something for disability in early saints. Yeah. Even though Joseph had multiple children who died of disability, even though they don't live to share their own stories, like we don't even really know of those stories. Before, when it mentioned the 116 pages, when Joseph lost that disabled child, that happened at the same time. Mm -hmm. Come Follow Me references that Emma lost a child at the time and all it says is the child was born too early and it passed away. And in my mind, I'm like, that usually means a disability. Like the child was disabled in some way, but that's not specified. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you say the child was born too early, People think, oh, well, I mean, it didn't really have a life. They they forget the humanity, right? I'm not going to get into pro-life and pro-choice stuff. For people who had been expecting a child and have set their hopes on having a child, and for that child to come too early and to die because of disability, that child was still alive to them. That child was still human. Mm -hmm. I really like how this blog post points out That they buried him and they gave him a name. They called him Alvin after Joseph's brother. Mm -hmm. And his tombstone reads, In Memory of an Infant Son. (sighs) I just think that's really sweet. I mean, it shouldn't be that sweet. Like, you had a kid and you're claiming him as your son. You know, that shouldn't be so surprising. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even today, that's a weird attitude that some people have such big opinions on. Mm -hmm. Some people in the church say... A child must have the breath of life. Have you heard of that? Uh -uh. Like take the first breath of life to have a spirit put into their body. If they don't take their first breath of life, then they don't have a spirit. And that means that it's a strange thing to mourn them. When in reality, like that was a child. And then those same people are like against abortion, you know, like, Uh I don't know. There's a lot of mixed up views that the church have about these things and about how people should respond to them. And... It's a whole jumble there. Yeah. And I'll just close out this section by saying Lucy Max Smith, Joseph's mom, said that the baby was a dear little stranger who was very soon snatched from Emma's arms and borne aloft to that great world of spirits before it had time to learn good or evil. Hmm. Okay. There's a couple of ableist metaphors In some of these sections, in section 18, verse 31 says, My grace is sufficient for you. You must walk uprightly before me and sin not, equating walking not uprightly with sinning. And then there is verse 40 in section 19 says, Canst thou run about longer as a blind guide? 
Okay, I'm glad you pointed those out because I found it interesting. I feel like when we point those little things out, people are like, okay, yeah, yada, 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 that doesn't really matter. Or no one reads those literally, so it doesn't actually like oppress disabled people at all. But first of all, when language constantly poses that something is lesser, people take that in and it affects perception. Secondly, people say like, oh, people don't take that literally. But then in activities with children, it is taken literally. And that scene in this Come Follow Me, Doctrine and Covenants 20 through 22, the section at the bottom, ideas for family scripture study and home evening. The second one, which is posed to families with children, it says, quote, what does it mean to walk in holiness before the Lord? It might be fun for family members to draw or write on pieces of paper some things that could help them walk in holiness or things that could distract them from doing so. Then they could create a path using paper and try to walk on the path, stepping only on the drawings that will bring them closer to Christ. So... I'm not saying this activity is like wrong to do. I think it's helpful to break things down in a way that kids will understand, but it's meaningful to point these things out because they are seen as literal at times and it's not us trying to pull something out of nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. The words have power and you Mm -hmm. see that power in the way the church teaches these concepts to children. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that, I don't know if you, you, you did that game where um, the teacher would put the chairs in the room and like jumble up the chairs, so and then it's, so it's like an obstacle course, and then you mm-hmm. have like all the other like kids in the class like scattered around the room, and you'd have to like get to the other corner with a blindfold, and like yeah. you had the Holy Ghost on one side, and then you have Satan mm-hmm. on the other side whispering, walk this way, no, walk this way. Yeah, yep, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that, that can be helpful for children to understand how the spirit works and how life works, but that kind of activity doesn't work for disabled children, obviously. Like, I couldn't participate in that activity pretty much no matter what age I was as a kid or as a teenager. There's so many activities where they would do something that I couldn't do. And then they would say, Katie can be the cheerleader. And that would make me so mad. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to be the cheerleader. Like that's just a way for them to feel better about me just watching and not participating in activities. So yeah. I mean, that's a side conversation. Like I don't see a problem in doing that if you have a group of able-bodied kids But if there is a disabled kid or neurodiverse kid who can't participate, find a different way to teach the concept. Yep. Don't just make them the cheerleader on the side. Yep. Do the work to like include the child, like stimulate your creativity. Oh my goodness. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. Um, One last thing before this, we close this section. Anytime Lucy Harris is mentioned, we can't not mention her because she's not mentioned so many times. Come follow me. This section for Doctor and Covenants 1819. Sorry, we're kind of flipping back and forth. But that section, right when it starts off, it says, Martin and Lucy Harris had one of the finest farms in Palmyra, New York. It had taken them years to acquire, had enabled them to raise a family, had given them good standing in the community. But in 1829, it became clear that the Book of Mormon could only be published if Martin mortgaged his farm to pay the printer. Martin had a testimony of the Book of Mormon, but Lucy did not. If Martin went forward with the mortgage and the Book of Mormon did not sell well, he would lose his farm and jeopardize his marriage. At some point or another, we will all face questions similar to those that Martin may have been facing. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ worth to me? What am I willing to sacrifice to build God's kingdom? It may help us to remember that no one has ever paid a higher price to bless God's children than Jesus Christ, quote, the greatest of all. Martin made the decision to mortgage his farm. His sacrifice paid for the printing of the first 5,000 copies of the Book of Mormon. And now, more than 190 million copies later, millions of souls around the world have been blessed. That mentions Lucy, but it's in a negative tone, saying she didn't have the faith and she did, it would though. ruin his marriage. Ugh. And then and then it references, for more information, see the book The Saints, 1, 76 through 84, And I read that entire thing and it tells the same story, but it doesn't even mention Lucy Harris at all, (laughs) like at all. So 
<laughs> that bothered me. Um, it's frustrating even when it does mention her in Come Follow Me. Yeah. I don't want to say, like, at least she was mentioned because it's no. negative. And it doesn't tell the whole story. It acts like it was only Martin's money that was being put at risk. Yeah. And we know that Lucy, Lucy's money contributed to the farm. Lucy's money... Yep contributed to like paying for the Book of Mormon and it acts like it was only Martin's decision and when that's not true. Yeah. It comes down to consent. And sure you can sacrifice, but it wasn't all Martin's money to sacrifice. He did it without the consent of his wife and it was her money too. And I think mm-hmm. that's problematic. I agree yeah. with you. Once again a disabled woman's opinion doesn't matter and a man's gonna make his choice no matter what. Like, Martin was the one with the resources, but that's something that he could have talked to his wife because it was such an important decision. It was literally putting everything that they had at risk, yeah. and it he just made the decision without her and didn't try to understand her side first and consult her. It appears that way based on how things are written. This episode's a little bit longer, so thanks for sticking around with us. It's our fifth Sunday. <laughs> oh, yeah. Teasing. You can find us on Instagram at holyhuman, and on Facebook at Holy Human Podcast. And our email, if you want to collaborate or send us a review or question, is at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com. And our Patreon, if you want to support two disabled women, their time and energy in producing something to hopefully bless other disabled and neurodivergent people, is patreon.com slash holyhuman. Thank you to Mativ for our intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. Join our Instagram and Facebook if you want to have access to our live Q&A, which we just published. Thank you for listening.